There are lots of lousy businesses, and there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio from the Global News Radio Studios in Toronto with Hi-Fi Portfolio Managers. Here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Well, my friends, another weekend, another week under our belts, and hopefully a few more shekels in your account. A strong market. Uh, you just got to stay long. And, well, the, the mantra in the market right now is just by the weakness. The market uh, has been unbelievably resilient this year. Uh, have you noticed oil uh, quietly pushing towards, well, I wouldn't be surprised seeing it uh, flirt with 100 bucks. Uh, perfect storm set up for oil. Undersupply, uh, ESG unfriendly, meaning as <laughs> governance and environmental unfriendly, carbon heavy. Uh, so the, the leaders are telling us, hate oil, we hate oil, stop using oil. And they are dealing, of course, with the uh, supply issue by not investing in oil and uh, reducing incentives. Uh, perfect storm being set up uh, for that commodity. And it's really, it's, it's rippling through multiple commodities. Uh, the one that really has my attention is uranium. Uh, it is the way to power the grid. And uh, Katie LaChapelle, she's one of our analysts at Canaccord, Equity Research, Metals and Mining. Uh, Katie LaChapelle, I love your name. Um, I, it, it is so French-Canadian. Uh, so welcome to our show. Um, so you, you, you are uh, from, from Quebec originally? I'm from uh, Collingwood originally, but my family is from uh, a small town outside of Sudbury called Chelmsford. So very, very French well, Canadian. How appropriate that you're a metal and mining analyst, because of course Sudbury, <laughs> uh, you know the Sudbury Saturday night, and uh, a lot of mining taking place in Quebec. Uh, there, um, let's get right into uranium. Uh, it, it's a very nebulous market um, in that, unlike oil, uh, that 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 trades at what's called the spot market, so buyers can certainly purchase crude. Uh, right here right now similar to going to home depot and pick up some two by fours but with the uranium market it doesn't truly have an efficient spot market and as such that spot market got thrown slightly out of whack with a sprot physical uranium trust coming to market purchasing physical uranium and uranium has gone gangbusters as have many of the uh, uh, uranium stocks specifically cameco uh, a name that uh, Jack and I tucked into our portfolio at around $15 uh, roughly a year ago. Stock is now at $32, uh, making us look quite smart. So please, I want you to speak to the, I want you to speak, I want you to speak to the uranium trade uh, because it, it was such an amazing trade uh, at the start of the uh, millennia uh, and it ran very strong as did oil up until 2007, 2008. And then the, uh, uh, the, the floor was pulled out beneath it. Uh, Looks like it's staged in a comeback right beside uh, crude. So uh, a lot to discuss, Katie. Please speak to us about the macro setup for uh, uranium and how it dovetails into oil and uh, the, the the electrical electrification of the grid. Yeah, definitely. So I'd say if you took a look at uranium maybe two years ago, um, the market was not in a great place. It had been in a low pricing environment for almost a decade. And that was sort of a result of um, a couple of things. We had Fukushima happen uh, back in 2011. And at that time, that took a significant amount of demand offline by the shutdown of numerous uh, nuclear reactors. At the same time, we had a lot of lower cost supply coming out of the market from Kazakhstan. So we hit this period where we were in a significant supply surplus um, for quite some time in the market. And it's taken almost a decade to run through that. And I think when we got towards 2020, it started to look like the market was starting to rebalance a little bit. 
And in my view, 2020 was really, I would say, the transitional year for uranium. And this is why we started to see a lot of investors start to revisit the space in a notable way. Um, during 2020, the demand tailwinds were extremely strong. So we saw China release its 14th five-year plan. That was extremely bullish for uranium, um, more than exceeded our estimates. Uh, and then we've also seen the U.S. show its support for reactor extensions. Just recently, it voted to keep some reactors online in Illinois. And worldwide, I think we've just seen an acknowledgement that nuclear is critical to meet our climate change goals going forward. Yet, if you look at the supply side of uranium during that time, uh, it's still highly concentrated and it's extremely fragile. So what we saw in 2020 was we saw COVID-19 disruptions, significant mines coming offline, Kazataprom taking their mines offline in Kazakhstan, which is the world's largest producer. We saw Cameco take down Cigar Lake because of COVID-19. Um, so this added to about 30% of mine supply that's already come offline since 2016 due to low prices. So we really hit a point where, we're, where we transitioned into a structural deficit in the market. And this was the first time that this had happened in nearly a decade. Um, so despite this, we didn't see that much of a reaction in uranium pricing. We saw a bit of a bump on the, on the back of the Cigar Lake shutdown. And that was just reflective of the fact that supply was extremely tight. What we've seen now and, and what you sort of highlighted earlier um, is the entrance of new vehicles coming into the uranium space. So we're starting to see people coming in and purchasing physical uranium, and that's taking advantage of the fact that it's a very opaque market that's thinly traded within the spot market. So we've seen the spot physical uranium trust come in. And what Sprott has done is they've raised money and they've gone and they've purchased physical pounds out of the uranium spot market. Why this has been so impactful in short is because supply is so, so tight right now, um, any purchasing that they're doing and being a continuous purchaser in the market is adding upward pressure on prices. And, we, and we've seen that dramatically. Um, if we look at the start of the year to now, we're up 56% in uranium prices. And that's, that's a very, very significant move. And I think that's why you're seeing the equities react on the back of that as well. Well, the, again, when it comes to producing power, um, the uh, all-in cost on a relative to the, the cost of uranium is quite small. In other words, in the grand scheme of things, uh, it doesn't affect the utilities that much if uranium moves from 40 to 60 a pound. Is that correct? Exactly. Utilities need uranium to keep their reactors online. Reactors are baseload. They need to make sure they have that supply. In terms of their overall cost base, it's a very significant or insignificant amount. Um, what's most important for utilities is security of supply. Uh, so regardless of sort of where we see the pricing move um, over the next sort of few months, what's important is to make sure those utilities have that supply in place. And that's why you've seen them historically enter into these long-term contracts to make sure they have delivery of uranium. Um, let's, let's speak about spot, uh, Sprott's physical trust, uh, Sprott's physical uranium trust. The symbol on it is U.UN. Trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange, but it trades in U.S. dollars, as all commodities are denominated in U.S. dollars. Yes, global currency continues to reign supreme. Um, so Sprott has been physically purchasing pounds of uranium. I have to ask, how many pounds do they now control, and where have they stored uh, this stuff? Yeah, so Sprott right now, um, so they had pounds before. So the easiest way to think about this is they were formerly known as the Uranium Participation Corp. So that was ticker U on the TSX. Um, what they did when Sprott took over Uranium Participation Corp is they changed it to a trust format. 
Um, and due to the trust format, they were able to announce an ATM. So this allowed them to, to constantly issue units and be a continuous purchase of uranium. So that's sort of the, the main difference between the, the two structures there. Um, since Sprott launched, so it launched its ATM on, I believe it was August 17th, um, they've purchased 16 million pounds of uranium. Uh, for context, 16 million pounds of uranium right now is about 9% of the current market. So they've been a substantial purchaser, wow. and that's just from August 17th alone. So that's why you've seen this sort of dramatic, dramatic um, move in pricing is we're in a really tight market right now, and I don't think if we were not in this fundamentally tight market, we wouldn't see this sort of reaction in pricing. Um, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to get a visual of what 16 million pounds of uranium looks like. I, you know, I say that, um, uh, and by the way, if you just tuned to the show, we're speaking with Katie LaChapelle. Uh, she's a metals mining analyst with Canaccord. It's a delight to be speaking with her. Uh, we have not met in person, thanks to COVID. Uh, she focuses on uh, lithium uh, and uranium. It's just two uh, critical areas, I think, right now uh, in the world of energy and electrification. So it's, it's very, very topical. Um, but I want to go back to uh, what does 16 million pounds of uranium look like? How much volume is it? Uh, if, if it were gold, gold is incredible. It's very de deceptive in that um, a small amount of gold can have so much mass to it because it's so dense. So gold doesn't take up as much room, but I think uranium is so much uh, lighter and therefore requires more volume to get yourself a pound. So how, how many warehouses would, would this be sitting in? Yeah, so uranium is one of those unique commodities in it, and it's actually stored in in four storage locations uh, around the world. So there's there's the chemical location in Canada, Converdine in the U.S., Orano in France, and Urenco in the U.S. Um, so when they're purchasing this uranium, they're not physically moving it to, you know, their warehouse they have in Toronto. <laughs> um, what they're doing is, is they're they're purchasing sort of the rights to that uranium, and it sits in those four storage locations uh, globally around the world. Uh, we're talking uranium. We're talking lithium. Uh, we're talking electrification. We're talking change, my friends. Indeed, it is a show about money. It's Hi-Fi Radio, WolfgangKlein.com. Any questions? Jack Hartle, first going to be uh, in the show. Uh, coming out of the break, you stand to. Money. Let's take a break. But after, Wolf and Jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. The bingo and the boys are getting stink all We think no more of bingo on a Saturday, Saturday night The glasses they will tickle when our eyes begin to pickle And we think no more of bingo on a Saturday, Saturday night Indeed, my friends, welcome back to the show about money we have Katie LaChapelle on the line. She's one of our analysts at Canaccord, a metals and mining analyst. Uh, Katie is from uh, Sudbury, but uh, being that Katie is <laughs> under 30, she's under 30, I can't believe she's a baby. Um, and yes, she's a she, very rare to, to have someone under 30 and female uh, as a analyst on Bay Street. I, I'm tipping my hat to you. I'm tipping my hat to Canaccord um, for, for having such fresh talent on the team. You're very, very uh, learned. Um, you have fantastic credentials. You, you, you're, you're an accountant. Um, you went to McGill, uh, Bachelor of Commerce as well. Worked at Price Waterhouse Coopers. Oh my! What, what, what are you going to do in your next decade? Maybe for another show. <laughs> Let's get right into it. We're talking uranium. We're talking uh, lithium. Uh, you know, uh, my, my heart uh, palpitated slightly when you mentioned um, that the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust was formerly the U. 
uh, that trade on the Toronto market. Uh, we own that, uh, Jack and I, in our portfolio. And you, I think you remember that now, Jack. And it was actually trading at the time at a premium to its net asset value. Uh, again, because it was so illiquid, so thinly traded, I think the premium was 15%. It was dead money uh, while we held it. We, we tipped it up, maybe down 8, 8 or 12%, doesn't matter. Moved on from the boring trade, forgot about it, and now you woke me up. To, I don't even want to look at the chart because I know it's worth a lot more money. <laughs> I know it is. Oh, my goodness. Another mistake I made. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, it's a humbling. And you know something? With all the mistakes we make, we still make money for our clients because the process works. And the process has to allow uh, for, for not error, just for things not working out. They, they, it's yin and yang, the, the market. If you have all your trades working out, you don't have enough trades on the deck. And you have to have sometimes stuff that's not working because at some point, that dog will bark, just like Katie's little puppers. Uh, and when that dog barks, it can <laughs> run. Uranium is having a fantastic run. Um, if we may, let, let's pivot for a sec over to the lithium trade. Um, I've been staring with my eyes, giving it retina burn, as we like to call it, which means I'll kill it just by staring at it so intensely. Uh, the LIT, it's an ETF, Katie. Uh, you, you know, the, 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 the lithium ETF that trades. What a clean, clean chart. Um, I'm looking for a car. Uh, Volkswagen is, is about to retool, revamp their entire line. They're dropping cars left, right, and center. Uh, they're not really giving me enough clues as to what they're about to do, but I know that they're going to be launching more and more uh, EVs. Uh, Tesla out with quarterly results just the other night. Solid uh, performance by that company. So electrification is here to stay. Uh, lithium. Uh, talk about that market. Who controls the market? Uh, has it gone too far too quick? Uh, is there shortages of, of, of the stuff? Uh, and, and what's China's influence in the lithium market? Because I know they're dominant players in the game. Yeah, as you said, China China is a dominant player in the in the game of lithium. So they have a lot of the conversion capacity um, specifically there. But a lot of the deposits aren't actually in China. The majority of the deposits are, are sort of in Latin America. So think Argentina, um, as well as Australia, where there's a lot of spodumene production coming out of there. With respect to the actual market, um, as you mentioned, it's a very clean chart. And what's happened is, is I think we had demand far overshoot our expectations, but at the same time, we saw a tight crunch in supply. Um, what happened was the lithium market previously was sort of on a downturn in terms of pricing. And then we sort of hit September of 2020. And hmm. at that point, due to the low pricing leading into that, we saw a lot of producers um, delaying their expansion plans, um, not bringing on projects they'd planned to bring on just due to the low pricing. Uh, but at the same time, we saw a dramatic improvement on the demand side. So we saw a huge rise in both European as well as Chinese EV sales. Um, sales in China and Europe more than doubled last year. I know it's a little bit more difficult for us to imagine here in North America, but if you look at Norway, 75% of the new vehicles registered in Norway last year were electric vehicles. Wow. We're seeing a dramatic, dramatic push uh, in terms of EVs, particularly in Europe, and then China's been strong as well. Uh, and this, this has really been driven by a couple of things. I'd say there's definitely continued legislative support and government incentives to purchase EVs. And over the last 12 months, as you said, we've seen the majority of automakers come out and declare some pretty aggressive electric vehicle targets. So what we continue to see is the numbers on the demand side are surpassing our expectations. However, on the supply side, um, yes, prices have recovered, and they're now sort of back into that incentive territory to bring on new production. But given 
the recent sector consolidation that we spoke of and the long lead times to production due to the lack of investment that we saw over the space in, in the 2019 period and into 2020. Uh, our view is that this supply is really going to struggle to keep pace with this growth in demand that we've seen. And that's where we've seen this upward push on prices. And I think we'll continue to see a little bit of that. It's going to continue to be a pretty tight market over the next two, three years. Uh, so the equities have performed pretty well, and I think they'll continue to do that. And as a result of that as well, we've seen a, a really big rise in M&A. As a Chinese key battery makers, they're trying to get their hands on whatever lithium supply they can at this point. Hey, Jack, you your brother um, works at Magna. Um, you're very close with your brother. So, so what's to speak out of Magna in terms of them pivoting into the uh, EV marketplace? Yeah, nothing directly from my brother, but from what I've seen on the street, uh, again, he's not looking at the high uh, strategic uh, developments at Magna. He's really looking at his his product line. But what I've seen on the street with the research that uh, that we have with coverage is, you know, they're really going to be transforming into um, the electric vehicle market. You know, they're obviously uh, very focused on internal combustion engines right now, transmissions and the like. But, uh, you know, they just came out with uh, earnings this past week. And that was the message that they gave. They're going to be transitioning into electric vehicles. They are certainly a leader in the automotive space, uh, and they want to be an, a leader in the electric vehicle uh, market space as well. Um, Katie, and again, friends, if you're just tuning in, uh, Katie LaChapelle, uh, equity analyst with Canacorch, uh, metals and mining research, uh, focusing on lithium and uh, uranium. Uh, Katie, what are you uh, most keen on? Uh, or really, is it all the same trade and and i think more the latter it's all the same trade oil copper lithium uranium and that is it's amazing how you spoke to both of them had a pivot point in 2020 uh they they all sort of changed beat at the same time but if i was speaking uh more secular in nature for the next five to ten years what do you think the better longer term investment uh theses is lithium or uranium or copper if i may throw that one in <laughs> I think we're going to need all of them, to be honest. I think the, the overall outlook here is decarbonization. More and more frequently, we're seeing governments come out with targets to decarbonize, and they're starting to realize that we need EVs for that. We need low carbon emission, baseload nuclear power. Um, I think all are going to do well over the, over the next period. I, I think on the demand side, it, we've seen that proven out in terms of electric vehicles. To me, that's, that's, that's going to be a clear winner. Um, I don't think the pace of EVs is going to slow down anytime soon. We need the investment in the supply, obviously, but we're seeing it happen in China. We're seeing it happen in Europe. I think it's only a matter of time, say 10 years from now, I'll probably be driving an electric vehicle here in North America. And in terms of nuclear power, yeah, we've seen consistent extensions of reactors here in, in, uh, in the United States. I think we're seeing a lot of countries who are maybe looking to step away from nuclear and now recommit to their plan. So if you take a look at... Um, even Japan, for example. So Japan had 54 reactors online prior to Fukushima. They've since restarted only nine. But the country, in order to meet their carbon emission goals of reducing, I believe it's by 46%, they need to restart 30 of those reactors. And they sort of have plans in place to start doing that. And we've also seen the same in France. Last week, the president just, or the prime minister just announced that they're looking to add 1 billion in towards developing new small modular reactors. So I think we're seeing a big push um, from governments, and I wouldn't even say governments, country or com companies as well, whether it's the auto OEMs, um, smaller companies that are looking at, at developing small modular reactors, we're seeing a push on both sides in terms of pushing, I would say, new energies forward. 
Katie, just looking at the environmental impact, because you talk about, you know, we, we do want to go electric. Uh, electric vehicles are the way of the future. Uh, lithium, uranium, copper are all very important. Can you, can you talk about the uh, environmental impact of actually extracting these uh, resources out of the ground? Because uh, I know we want to get to net zero, but it takes a lot of you know, diesel fuel to actually extract uh, these resources as well. Yeah, and, that, and that's true. We It's mining, right? Like you're going to have to, regardless, you're going to have to mine the materials out of the ground or, or via brine, et cetera. Um, but a lot of companies on the mining side are making positive push forwards in, in terms of being carbon neutral, um, whether that's recycling of their water usage, um, doing better things with respect to tailings, using electric fleets in their mines. Um, there's always going to be a, a little bit of carbon intensity involved in that. But there's a lot of work toward how we can be neutral with respect to that moving forward. And I think you're seeing a lot more companies take their ESG mandates a lot more seriously than, than say, five, 10 years ago. And that's because investors are demanding it at this point. I think ESG is real and it's here to stay. Uh, Katie, let's get to, into some stock-specific ideas. Um, again, when, when I delve into a subcategory, uh, so of course there's metals and mining, but then within that you have multiple branches. You have gold, you have silver, you have copper, you have platinum, palladium, go down the list. And then you get to stuff more esoteric. You got uranium and then lithium and then molybdenum and, and, and rare earth. So you get far out onto the tail. Uh, when, when you go into the tail, even close to it, uh, I believe you want to have a high quality uh, leader in the space so that if you get yourself a downturn, it'll have a balance sheet and, and enough um, wherewithal that it can survive the downturn. So I, I lean to number one, if I'm gonna buy uranium, I'm gonna move right away to Cameco. Uh, Pure play, world's largest or second largest producer. Um, when it comes to lithium, I'm seeing a lot more fragmentation, but I'm also seeing companies that are probably more like a pure play as opposed to what we'd call a polymetallic, whereas a mining company that, that mines a, a bit of everything and they end up with byproducts. Um, so is that true? Lith lithium is more of a pure play. And if so, how do you play? What, what are the large cap, uh, safer lithium investments that one can look at? Yeah, so in terms of lithium, um, as you said, it's not as obvious as when you look at the uranium space. You've really got two main producers. You've got Cameco because that's a problem, Cameco being the pure play. Uh, on the lithium side, you've got the main sort of players. You have Albemarle, you have Livent, um, Oracle Bray. There's a couple bigger guys with respect to lithium that I would consider to be the pure plays. Um, my coverage specifically is more of the advanced stage developers. And, and I would say they're looking pretty attractive right now just on the basis of you're seeing a lot of these larger players either consolidate or the battery manufacturers come in and buy these development stage products because they need to secure supply. Um, so yeah, while there's a couple couple sort of key players that I would point you to, I would say that also looking at some of those advanced stage products, we're going to need them in the coming year. So, so I wouldn't leave those out of your portfolio as well either. Um, picking names in, in, in this space or buying the ETF. And again, I haven't looked deep into the ETF, the LIT, um, but Jack mentioned to me that he, because the two of you had a conversation off air, and if I recall, one of you uh, alluded to the fact that it does have a lot of uh, Chinese dominant companies uh, in the ETF. And for the most part, Jack and I do stay away from, shy away from Chinese companies due to accounting and, and regulatory issues that seem to haunt the market periodically. Uh, uh, so do you know much about what the constituents of the LIT are? Yeah, so in terms of the LIT, um there's some of the bigger holders, uh, as we spoke about. So you've got the Albemarle that we spoke about. There are some of the Chinese players in there. So you've got Gangfang Cattle, which is one of the largest battery makers. 
Um, and then you have some other EV plays that are not necessarily specifically uh, on the uranium side, but are more the thematic in general. So you have Tesla in there, um, you've got LG Chem in there, um, Live and as we spoke on Oro Cobra. It's sort of a mix of battery makers as well as lithium producers. Uh, but there are, there are a, a couple of Chinese names in there as well. Did you mention a company called Gang Fang? Yes. That's quite the name, yeah, eh, Jack? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, scary. it's scary. Well, <laughs> well it can be. You, know, we, you just hear these stories. Um, and again, I think about uh, a Ceno Forest. Uh, again, all the rage, hot stock, and all of a sudden there were no trees. Um, you, you don't want to get caught with your pants down with stuff like this here. Because you, if you get the theme right, but you pick the wrong name, uh, you, you defeated the purpose. So I really like the theme. The question is, I think lithium is a little trickier to play. Um, so in your four names that you cover, uh, Katie, uh, what is the safer play? I'm going to assume it's Lithium America just because it trades on the TSX versus the other three names you cover trade on the Venture Exchange. Yeah, Lithium America, is, uh, I would say, is probably my top pick right now. Um, I really like Neo-Lithium prior, but it just got taken out, which is, which is sort of a call that we made. Um, but in terms no. of Lithium America, they've got a really high-quality project uh, in Argentina called Cachari Olaraz. That's currently under construction. Um, it's going to be in production mid-2022. It's pretty de- it's, it's essentially de-risk at this point. They're sort of finishing up the construction there. Um, they have the balance sheet to complete it. They've got about five hundred million in cash. So, so aside from just them advancing that development project in Argentina, they're also looking to advance a project in the U.S. called Thacker Pass. I think we're going to hear a lot more about that in the coming months. So, it's a lithium clay project in Nevada. Um, it received its federal permits in in last January. Um, right now, the company is in discussions with respect to looking for a potential partner to move that project forward. And I think we're going to see some some de- some details on that around sort of Q1 of this year, as well as some updated economics on the project. So there's a lot of strong catalysts for this company going forward. Really strong management team, great balance sheet in terms of cash, and they're one of the only, I would say, developers at this point that are likely going to come and produce new production in 2022. So they're really really well positioned going forward. Friends, we're doing our homework on Saturday night. Yeah, we're digging deep into the uh, trenches, trying to find some new ideas to help us make money for our clients. Yes, we like to do our work unplugged live right here in front of you. It is a fantastic time to spend an hour with you each and every Saturday night. Hi, Pi Radio. We're going to take a quick break, get right back to the show with Katie LeChapelle, one of our analysts, Metals and Mining at Canaccord. Stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome back, my friends. The band is Tower of Power. Quite appropriate, I thought. Uh, Katie LeChapelle, one of our analysts, metal and mining research. We're talking about power. We're talking about electrification. We're talking about change. We're talking about cleaner air. Um, Boy, oh boy, has climate ever become such a front and center conversation. Uh, Right through the boardrooms, um, you know, everyone is taking some responsibility, some more than others. But uh, certainly, uh, the awareness uh, has never been higher. Thank goodness for that. Uh, yet, we want to consume power. And, well, we want to try to do it in a cleaner fashion. 
you know, Katie, when you look at your work, um, you know, did you feel optimistic about the future? Uh, you know, from an energy consumption point of view, do you think we're going to get this right? I, again, if I may, I, certainly I think the right examples continue to come out of Europe. And as you alluded to, is it I think you said Norway uh, or Denmark, 75% EV sales this year. Uh, and I know many towns in Europe are, are going to make it forbidden to have a combustible vehicle enter their four walls. Uh, so uh, you, you must feel you know, pretty good about your, your, your space right now. Yeah, I think it's been really exciting. I, I think there's been so many positive demand indicators just over the course of the last 24 months. When I started looking at the space 24 months ago, people were saying, oh, why do you want to get into uranium? Why do you want to get into lithium? Both are sort of at the bottom of the cycle. And it's just been such a dramatic shift since. And, and as I am a younger analyst, to me, I feel like it's perfect positioning for me. I, I can see it going that way. I can talk to my friends who say they're going to purchase EVs. I, I think we can't get this wrong. I think we need to have continued push from governments and, and companies to push these initiatives forward in terms of decarbonization. Um, yes, there's been aggressive targets set globally, but I think it's sort of putting us in the right direction going forward. Um, yes, we might not meet those targets exactly in the timelines we're supposed to, but I think we need to continue to, to act in accordance with those to actually see the transition happening. And, I, and yeah, you're right. We're seeing it happen in Europe a little bit quicker than here, but they're setting a good example of, of where to go. And I think that will transition over to North America in the course of the next decade. Hey, Katie, I want to get, get a few facts on the, out of you, if you don't mind. Um, a couple things. Number one, um, in terms of uh, nuclear power, uh, how much of our power in Canada and in Ontario is from nuclear, uh, and perhaps if you have the global number, that'd be uh, interesting. And then the next question, I'm going to give you two and one, you can answer both at the same time. Uh, in terms of constructing batteries uh, for vehicles, uh, what are the key components? Uh, what are, what's the biggest input item? Copper, nickel, of course, lithium. Can you go through the, 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 the building blocks of a battery, rudimentally speaking? Yeah, so with respect to, um, first, in terms of nuclear power, about 15% of Canada's electricity does come from nuclear. Um, the majority of those reactors are in Ontario. So there's, there's 19 reactors in Ontario as a whole. Um, if you look globally right now, it's about 11, 11, 12% of the world's power um, comes from nuclear. Uh, in terms of the actual uh, lithium market, in terms of batteries, um, there's couple of main components depends on the batteries but if you think of something like nmc you'll hear that being thrown a lot around from the cathode side you've got nickel you've got cobalt you've got manganese and then you have lithium as well uh, and then on the anode side the other big contributor is graphite so i think that's why we're seeing a lot of push in terms of all of those commodities listed there and the security of the supply for those commodities going forward fascinating yeah i think there's something like 200 uh, nuclear reactors in the world i think there was about 50 or so that were on the table to be built. And again, it's, a long, it's what we call long cycle stuff. You don't build a nuclear reactor tomorrow. It takes a long time to plan them uh, and, and get them through uh, government and funding. It's a slow, arduous process. So this demand for EV is coming fast. Can we meet it on the supply side? It, it's just a dynamic story. Uh, unfortunately, Katie, we have to uh, move on to our next guest. I can't thank you enough for your time this Saturday night. I want to wish you a safe weekend. I can't wait to meet you in the office very shortly. Uh, and you continue uh, to do the good work you make those millennials so proud uh stay tuned amos nadler phd former behavioral finance professor uh currently uh chief research scientist 
with uh, Poise Wealth Tech. Uh, he's going to be a great conversation with our friend. Stay tuned. Listen, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, money. more money talk. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Hi there. Peter Gabriel, great record, eh? Love that record. Almost not, that one's for you, my good friend. Uh, former behavioral finance professor, um, currently chief research scientist at, is it Poise, a wealth tech? Mm-hmm. Well, welcome well, welcome back to the show, my friend. Um, let us start off with, uh, you wrote a few pieces on LinkedIn, uh, again, behavioral financial uh, focused, one on averaging down. Friends, that means you buy a stock, it goes down, you buy more. Uh, it, it truly is a no-no. Uh, it's, it's, it's broken discipline if you, if you pull that move. So almost, uh, but please share with us the psychology behind averaging down. Oh, yes, indeed. This is a, a classic. So this has actually been studied quite a bit. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, studied, you know, us academics like to look at uh, investor behavior. And what we find is that people, well, we, we hate to lose, right? That's, that's kind of a standard Standard one. And averaging down means that you bought something and then the price drops. And what we found is that people have what's called, we call it reference dependent, which is the reference is the price relative to your average cost. And when there's a big gap, that big loss, people, what they do to feel better, to minimize the pain, is to say, well, I'll just buy more of that thing. And the motivation for it is to feel better. That's the only motivation. It's not that they say, okay, now let's reassess the true situation, the fundamentals of the firm, what's happening with the sector, what are the macro factors. No, no, no. I just want to feel better. And so they, instead of not itching the mosquito bite, they, you know, scratch the heck out of it. Now they're bleeding. And that's basically kind of the analogy for, uh, for uh, loss chasing, that they're chasing these losses. And the only reason is to feel better. What happens, your portfolio goes from being maybe balanced to now being imbalance because you own a lot more of a stock that has now dropped brilliant uh, and what was the other piece you, you you wrote you wrote on oh i worked yeah so I, I i you know i said all right here's this idea that what i just said was like okay that sounds good well let's actually test it with data so what we did was we uh took the s p and uh, replicated a bunch of different portfolios and then looked at traders that that did this action that kept buying these losing stocks and the more they bought, the more they lost. And this is interesting because we could compare their performance relative to people who held the same assets but didn't keep doubling down. And we found that the people who didn't keep doubling down, who maybe didn't trade at all, actually outperformed the index. So basically, if you have losing stocks and the impulse drives you to keep buying more and more and more, those transactions are killing you uh, more than likely. And so that was the, the analysis that we found is you're going to create what's called negative alpha, where we attribute your behavior. I think Jack had used this term, you know, attribution, behavioral attribution, that these things are very hurtful to you. And we can show that empirically, um, you know, slap on the wrist. Don't do it. Don't do it as right. But let's move on to your new project. Uh, almost. Uh, please share with the class. Um, what are you up to? Oh, well, 
it's funny you mentioned class because this idea came to me when I was uh, a prof- uh, an assistant professor at in Los Angeles, and I read a paper showing that people tend to sell their winners early. Uh, they, they you know sell at a small gain, but they hang on to losers, and these you know these big losses kill their kill their performance. And I was thinking, gosh, this is such a cool paper. Somebody should turn this into a piece of technology that's available to people, and uh, that's what I've been working on. So it, this is called the the company's called Poise. And what it does is it provides both investment managers and people who like to make their own decisions, you know, these self-directed types. It'll allow you to see what behaviors you do that help or hurt your performance. Explain, using, explain you know, that, for, yeah, explain that for, further to us yeah. in terms of how will it help you understand your behaviors? Okay, so let's say that you have a portfolio and you buy a bunch of stocks. We know what the performance of those stocks is. But if you're actively managing, you're buying, making buy and sell decisions, that's called active management, right? And so we can compare the impact of your active management on your performance relative to the buy and hold for those stocks. So the, the meddling with your portfolio, these like emotional decisions, uh-huh. buy more, sell more, we can actually break that down into patterns of behavior. And there's, you know, there's a handful of behavioral biases that are very well studied in finance. And we've developed super secret algorithms we can't talk about on the radio uh, on how to, how to detect them. And so we tell you whether you do this thing or not, and then we can show you the impact it's had on your portfolio. So if it's something negative, you better stop doing that. If it's something positive, keep doing that. So, you know, sell your winners, excuse me, sell your losers and let your winners run as opposed to. Uh, and I learned what you're talking about in, in my early days on Bay Street. And and and, and the, uh, uh, the 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 call was it was uh, little profits and big losses. Taking little profits and hang on to your big losses, which is what you do not want to do. Look, Jesse Livermore, uh, reminiscent of a stock operator uh, who was mm-hmm. the ultimate trader, even said the real money is in the big move. And again, that's where our last guest, speaking lithium, speaking uh, chemical Mm -hmm. and uranium, uh, I think there is a continuous big move afoot. Obviously, it's already had a huge move. That market probably ripe for pullback consolidation. The mere fact that I'm talking about it, highlighting it, tells me we're probably getting a little bit ahead of itself. But I still think it's got a a lot of time left in it. And, you know, almost we often say, Jack and I, in this show, a portfolio is like a bar of soap the more you touch it, the smaller it gets. So, um, in terms of these, you know, in terms of these behavior buys, just in the interest of time, we got about another minute left here. Uh, share with us what one of the other um, obvious mistakes investors make, and how you, with your software, can better help them. Mm. So, we we already touched on the disposition effect, the uh, the one we just talked about. We talked about loss chasing. So, panic selling is a good one. Mm. Uh, that one's pretty easy. You can see that, that a lot of people during crashes just panic and sell, and they're great at timing the bottom of those panics. And that one's pretty straightforward. We can we can see what portion of the portfolio they sold at the bottom, and imagine had they been able to you know not touch the bar of soap and just allow it to bottom out, allow it to come back. Especially if you hold an index fund, the chance of it coming back is very high because it's composed of the companies that are going to be winning over the long term. So that's an easy example. Uh, Amos Nadler, uh, PhD, uh, Chief Research Scientist at Poise Wealth Tech. We have to get you into the office, sit down uh, at the table, uh, Jack and I and you, and learn more about your software. I'm very intrigued. Indeed, I am. I want to wish you all a great weekend. Time is up. 
show about money each and every Saturday. It's a pleasure to spend an hour with you. Jack always sets the show up with such great guests for us to have a fireside chat with. Uh, any questions, by the way, WolfgangKlein.com. Uh, my friends, performance matters. Check out what we do for our clients. I think you'll be quite impressed. Have yourself a safe weekend. We'll speak with you next Saturday. Listening to Hi Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. Hi Fi Radio for the love of money. We'll see you next week.